Today is December 21st, 2020. Congressional leadership comes together to pass a bipartisan stimulus plan. A new report shows that China wasn't very truthful about their numbers in the pandemic. And AOC doesn't make the cut of an exclusive House committee. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family to another fabulous episode of Split the Difference podcast hosted by yours truly, Austin Taylor. We are so glad to have you here and we are looking forward to having the best episode that we have done so far rolled out to you here early on this Monday morning. Before we get started in a bit of housekeeping items, we will not be having podcasts on Wednesday or Friday of this week as I will be having a little bit of holiday just like many of you will be having a little bit of holiday to celebrate Christmas. Um, But we'll be right back in the action next Monday bringing you all the best insights from the left and the right side of the aisle, doing our best to always stay level-headed, always stay reasonable, and of course, to split the difference, to find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the center. If you are new to our podcast, just a little tidbit, we are a political podcast that looks at both sides of the aisle. We work hard to have good conversation and bring a little bit of unity to all of the divisiveness that we see in our world today. We know that oftentimes when we're having conversations with our friends and our neighbors about politics, it's normally civil and you don't see all the craziness that normally the media pushes on you and everybody always says is out there. We are working to build more of that, have a little bit of community and a little bit of unity in this conversation, to have informed opinions and to be okay if other people disagree with our opinions, as long as we can all come together in the center and have a good time doing it. So... With all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, Congress gets some pretty bipartisan support around a relief package for the coronavirus pandemic. We have been waiting on this for a long, long time. It is the much-awaited COVID stimulus package that they've been threatening to come out with for months and months now. They passed one earlier this year. Everybody's been waiting on a second one because there's a bunch of things that are going to discontinue around December 31st, which we will talk about a little bit later on. Um, But everybody's been waiting all year for Congress to actually get on the horse, figure out what they're going to do and get something passed. And it sounds like all the arguing that went back and forth over the past week or so, um, it went all the way up through the weekend. And they voted on it yesterday. Um, and, you know, it looks like something's going to actually get passed. So it looks like both sides are compromising a pretty good bit. The Republicans aren't getting everything that they want. The Democrats aren't getting everything that they want. But they're coming together to pass about a $900 billion stimulus package. So that's still a pretty hefty stimulus package that they're going to be rolling out. And it includes a whole bunch of stuff. So um, what we can do is go ahead and hop in real quick. This is CNN reported on this uh, yesterday. We can hop in and take a look at this now. Richard Quest. And, you know, Richard, what do we know about what is going to be in this package? It is the art of what is possible not what is desirable or wanted by either side. So the package that's coming together is a pretty slimmed down version. Still a large number, 900 billion. But at the end of the day, Brianna, it's what you can get them to agree upon. So stimulus checks to Americans look like that's going to be part of the deal. It won't be $1,200 like the first round back in the spring. This will be more modest, somewhere between three and six or $700 per person. 
depending on your tax status. Then you've got money that will be made available for vaccine distribution. There's almost no doubt about those cash and that funds. That's considered to be a number one priority. You start getting more controversial when you move across to jobless benefits. Now here, the Republicans have bulked at a large number, but it seems likely $300 a week extension on jobless benefits. Remember, at the worst of the earlier pandemic, it was $600 a week, but that simply wouldn't fly now. Very important. An eviction moratorium will be extended. If not, at the end of this year, Brianna, up to 20 million people could be thrown out of their homes. All right. So um, he said a whole bunch of stuff there. and We're going to go through and break a good bit of this down. So supposedly the bill contains a pretty good amount of stuff that uh, is going to be much, much needed. And I'm going to kind of walk through my top three things that I think are the best things that the bill is able to contain. Um, well, before we get in, I guess, my top three things, the thing that most everybody wants to talk about is the stimulus check. So it does look like there are going to be stimulus checks, more than likely about $600. I've been able to verify that from a couple of different sources, and that is obviously more than likely going to be the same thing that was happening earlier this year, where it's capped at a certain income amount. So depending on what your income is, if you are above that income threshold, you will not get a stimulus check, but everybody below it will get that. More than likely, this will include every single person with Within a household, and you will also get a stimulus check for dependents or for children as well. Um, that's something that actually kind of didn't really happen the last time around. So it's smaller than the $1,200 that everybody got last time, but I think the $600 is going to be beneficial. It is pretty unfortunate that they weren't able to actually get all of that rolled out before Christmas because I think that the whole idea and the argument behind the government giving people money, if you actually think back to our podcast on Friday, the whole purpose behind the government giving people money directly is so that they can then take that money and put it back into the economy. And they kind of missed the boat with the whole Christmas season because this is when everybody spends more money than the entire year. So it, within the entire year. So they kind of missed that. But, you know, that $600 goes for a very, very long way for a lot of people. You know, for a lot of people that's paying for, you know, rent for a month. Um, so that can make a pretty big difference. So my top three things that are the most important that I think are the most beneficial that we have needed for a long time and that, you know, it looks like Congress is going to step in and actually uh, make a little bit of a headway on. The first thing is the extension of jobless benefits. So this is in my top three things is needed because there are a lot of people that are jobless right now. The unemployment rate, I believe, is still hovering around eight to 10 percent. That's still extremely high. Um, and a lot of these people are probably not going to be going back to work, or if they do go back to work, they will see an extremely a huge decrease in the payment that they and the you know the actual salary or wages that they get because a lot of these people are within a service industry. So if you think about like restaurants, if you think about um, a lot of different uh, businesses that are going to be supporting people and working face to face, but maybe people that live on tips or maybe people that live on like a very low. Um, you know, hourly wage, but they get more money outside of that based upon commissions and whatnot. So those people are going to be the most affected by this pandemic because when during a shutdown, they can't actually do their job. This jobless benefit that was passed by the federal gov government earlier this year gives the states more funding to be able to provide for those unemployment and those jobless benefits that people without a job are going to be able to have. So this would is $300 a week. Earlier this year, it was $600 a week. They've bumped it down to $300 a week that it will be extra that people can get on top of their state unemployment that they're already receiving from the state. So um, 
It's looking like right now, uh, from where the coronavirus cases and the numbers are, they're continuing to go up. They're not going down anytime soon. Um, with the vaccine rollouts and stuff, yes, that's going to help, but it's not going to make a huge dent in the numbers that you're seeing, or especially with it, probably within the next month to two months. So there's still going to be shutdowns. There's still going to be people that can't work. They need those jobless benefits. Uh, the second big thing is the eviction moratorium. So basically what an eviction moratorium does, if you don't know, it keeps you from being evicted from your house from not paying rent. So if you're renting an apartment, you're renting a house or whatever, uh, it keeps landlords from evicting tenants because they're behind on their rent uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic. So uh, this is going to extend the moratorium on evictions for I'm not exactly sure how long. My guess would be probably until around March or so, maybe even into April or May. And this is going to allow people to hopefully get stimulus checks in, get jobless benefits in, not have them being removed from their housing, and hopefully get back into a job where they can start working out things with their landlords around if they're behind on their rent or if they need to make another couple payments and how they're going to be able to do that. Uh, it basically just buys a lot of landlords and it buys a lot of renters a lot of extra time. Most landlords don't want to kick people that they have renting out of their, you know, out of the the rentals that they have, because when you do that, you then have to go through a whole new vetting process to be able to get new renters. Not a lot of people are probably on the rental market right now because of the pandemic and because of the, you know, the situation that the economy's in. So landlords are obviously probably supportive in a lot of ways of this moratorium that allows you know people to be able to stay in their houses for as long as they can so that landlords can eventually work out repayment plans if they are behind. Um, it's never fun to, 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 of course, have to evict a renter, although there will be probably a lot of people that are evicted, especially towards the end of this pandemic. But um, hopefully this eviction moratorium and the extension of job benefits will hopefully kind of ease some of that. Um, the third biggest thing for me that I think is the most beneficial is going to be money for the vaccine. So this is going to give local and state authorities more money to help them in the distribution and in the whole, uh, basically the whole supply chain process of the vaccine. It also is going to hopefully, uh, I believe, give better funding to the, for those that don't either don't have insurance or otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. So it's going to set aside a pool of money by the federal government to be able to make sure that every single person that wants to get and is able to get a vaccine can get the vaccine. Um, I think that there are right now within the FDA, the second vaccine by Moderna is through going through the approval process. It looks like that more than likely will be approved probably here within the next week or two. So there will be a second vaccine that will be able to be rolled out to the American people. This money that is going to be set aside by Congress will aid in getting that vaccine to the people. So definitely awesome stuff that needed to be done. So um, much of this has actually been slowed down. Uh, by uh, a disputed step by the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, um, who actually declined to allow for the programs that were set in place earlier this year by Congress uh, to continue on past December 31st. So it's been argued back and forth in legal, cir legal circles for a while, but the Treasury Department argued that they did not have the power to extend those benefits because that extension needed to be done by Congress. So as most of you know, Congress is the one that holds the power of the purse. So the executive department can't go out and just start writing all these blank checks. And all of that has to be approved by both the House and the Senate. Uh, this 
you know, it's pretty much a big check and balance to be able to make sure that the executive department doesn't kind of just run rampant and hand money out or pay for whatever it is that they want. So the idea was basically the act that was passed earlier this year gave funding to, to the Federal Reserve and for the authorized the Federal Reserve to give all of these benefits out and to basically flush the entire economy with cash. But that money was supposed to stop flowing at December 31st of this year. When they passed the bill, pretty much nobody foresaw that this was going to continue to happen for as long as it has and for it to be as extensive in the impact that it has. So why exactly then, I guess, would Steve Mnuchin argue against just extending the benefits, right? Like if he maybe could get away with the Treasury Department just saying, yeah, we'll allow these benefits that's currently in that's cur- that are currently in place and allow the Federal Reserve to just give out this money, why wouldn't he just do it? So Steve Mnuchin is basically arguing that the executive branch doesn't have that power and he doesn't want the Treasury Department and the executive branch to have that power. It basically would be setting a precedent a precedent that the Treasury Department would, in some cases, be able to bypass the power of the purse that is held by Congress and then be able to decide what social programs and what different you know programs that the Treasury Department would want to give money to authorized by the Federal Reserve. So the idea by Steve Mnuchin is, right now I'm in power, and it'd be really nice if I could get the, you know, the credit for extending all these benefits and giving people this desperately needed money. But I don't want that to happen, and for the Treasury Department to just have this power and the executive branch to have this power to authorize the Federal Reserve to hand, dole out money to whoever they want when I'm not in power. Honestly, I think it is a pretty good step by Steve Mnuchin to make this decision. It'd be incredibly difficult to make that decision because you know that he wants the credit just like all the Republicans want the credit to be able to hand out money for the coronavirus pandemic. But, you know, he's deciding not to do that in order to be able to keep more of those checks and balances there. I honestly really commend him for that. I think that that is absolutely the right move to make. So, I'm not sure when we'll actually start seeing all this money flow through the economy and come to everybody. Hopefully the aid will start happening very, very soon. It needs to happen soon. There's a lot of people that are hurting for sure. Um, so I think that at the mo- for the most part, it looks like everything is going to be passed through the House and through the Senate. They're vote- they voted all throughout the weekend. So hopefully everything gets out and you'll be able to start seeing this money actually pushed out to Americans within the next couple of weeks. Um, they missed the biggest spending season of the year, like I said earlier, but that's all right. Americans still need the money. Um, and my hope, obviously, is that the hope or that the money will you know help people out that really need it the most and enable to kind of just kind of push them along until they're able to either go back to work or, you know, continue in on the work that they're doing and, you know, save a little bit of that money and be able to put them on better footing. So with all of that having been said, that's the end of story number one. Let's hop on into our second story of the day. Story number two. Second story of the day is, believe it or not, can you guys believe it? China lied about their numbers and the stuff that they were doing for the beginning of the pandemic. What? So this should come as zero surprise to pretty much everyone, okay? But a new report shows that Chinese government lied a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, and it is likely still going on. So if we remember way, way back to like January and February, okay, the pandemic was just starting. We were hearing about these distant cries of a pandemic that was happening in China, and China basically said, no, nothing's going on. You guys don't need to worry about it. We have everything under control. Well, then there's this doctor. His name is Dr. Li Wenliang, I believe is his name. 
Ling Yang, Wen Liang, I can't, sorry, I can't pronounce his name, but uh, he basically was this w- big whistleblower in China that came out and said, listen, this this disease is bad, this virus is not good, and it could easily turn into a global pandemic. Well, he died on February 7th of the coronavirus. This sparked a massive disinformation campaign carried out by the Chinese government, specifically working to quell fears that the virus was spreading quickly, and also to quell fears that the Chinese government didn't have firm control on what was going on. So um, there's a research professor at UC Berkeley. Uh, his name is Xiao Xiang, I believe is how you pronounce his name, uh, claimed that China's propaganda and censorship operation is pretty much unmatched by any other nation in the world. And the scary thing is how they went about doing it and who all they were able to fool. Okay, so this doctor passed away earlier in the year and China was very, very worried that this doctor's death would set off like basically what they were calling a quote butterfly effect. Okay, Um, they were worried that his death would happen and then all of a sudden all these people all around the world and these news outlets would start reporting and start sending the story out and they'd basically be like, listen, this stuff is real. This this virus could absolutely impact the entire world. We need to step in on this now. China, what are you doing about it? China didn't want that to happen, so they ordered all of the news outlets within China not to report on it. They also instructed social media outlets to remove his name from trending on absolutely anything within China. They stopped the spread of information about his death from getting out completely. The government also went in and systematically hired internet trolls to publish a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't true so that people just wouldn't know what was going on. And they called it uh, basically stopping distracting chatter, quote unquote, that could be used to take the focus off of the death of the doctor and the spreading of the virus. So China came in and implemented this incredibly massive, very, very well-coordinated, very well-funded disinformation campaign that was used to take the focus off of the virus and convince the people of China and also the people of the world that it's you know wasn't nearly as big of a deal as it actually was. So leaked documents published by ProPublica in the New York Times on Sunday showed that the government purposefully worked to silence people that were working or going against the narrative that the Chinese government was pushing. So the information was pulled from 3,200 directives and over 1,800 memos that contained specific orders to not include words like incurable, fatal, or lockdown in headlines for news agencies. So the Chinese government stepped in and was basically like, we control all of the news. You are not allowed to say these specific things that would ignite or spark any type of faith, like a a misplaced, uh, I guess, judgment on the Chinese government. So basically, they lied to the world, they lied to their people, and they're likely still lying about everything right now. For all we know, there could be a million or more people that have died from the coronavirus in China, and we'd have no idea because the Chinese government has been lying about it for the entirety of 2020. So for the majority of people, this is not surprising at all, right? They hear this and they're like, yeah, that's pretty much par for the course. That's exactly what I would expect from China. We know that the Chinese government lies frequently and controls narratives with their own country, We know that uh, they're a communist regime that purposefully goes out of their way to bolster their own power and silence dissidents. The scariest part about all this is how many people in America and around the world were so easily swayed by what the Chinese government was saying. 
Okay. The World Health Organization very, very early on in January was taking directives from China and believing every single thing that China was saying. In January and February, the World Health Organization was saying that there was nothing to worry about, that China had absolutely everything under control, and that the virus was not spreading quickly within Wuhan and within China as a whole. Meanwhile, there were thousands of people checking into Chinese hospitals with the coronavirus and many of them dying. Okay. Also, what is scary is how the American media landscape as a whole trashed pretty much anybody that dared to say that the Chinese government was not acting responsibly, most notably Donald Trump. The reason why the media trashed anybody that went against China was because Donald Trump went against China. So it was like, Trump is the worst person ever. He is the epitome of all evil. Anything that he says, we have to take the exact opposite course of action on. So Trump, early on, banned travel from China, okay? The American media, I mean, trashed Donald Trump about this, said that he was racist, said that he was purposefully trying to uh, form dissent against Asian people and Asian Americans, saying that he was awful. There were all these claims that Americans were being racist towards Asian people, refusing to eat in their restaurants. The media was claiming that all this, of course, was done and propagated by Donald Trump and the right wing of the aisle. The vast majority of that completely false. So, it's very scary to people that there's still people in America that don't view China as an imminent threat to the United States. A lot of people, especially on the left side of the aisle, are very, very apologetic towards China as a whole and, you know, have been very critical of Trump and his hard line against China. Uh, there, you know, there are a lot of people saying that he shouldn't be working as hard as he has against them, that he shouldn't be trying to undermine Chinese authority and Chinese leadership within the world. Um, but honestly, I really do think this is probably one of the stronger, uh, stronger lines that Trump was able to take up, especially within his foreign policy agenda during his administration. I don't agree necessarily with all the ways that he went about doing it, right? I think that the tariffs didn't work and were not great. Um, just for, I guess, a quick example off the top of my head, but uh, being tough on China is something that not only needs to happen, has needed to happen over the past four years, but it's needed, been needing to happen so for the past 20 years, right? Like the American government has to take a hard stance against China because China is and has been a communist regime. All out, straightforward, they are communist, right? And commu- there's anything that communism does not like, it's a free market in democracy. They hate it. It cannot work well together. And so China is working very hard to convince the entirety of the left, you know, the more Western countries uh, that are all of them democracies, been trying to convince them that China is, you know, we're just like y'all, we just go about things a little bit differently. This is just the latest story that shows that that is a complete lie, right? China actively works to undermine dissidents to the Communist Party in China. Xi Jinping, the president of China, should be feared and he should absolutely be somebody that we are working actively against to stop the free flow of disinformation that is coming out of China and to be able to stop all the horrible human rights abuses that are going on in China as well. Um, So do not be convinced that China is not working to attack America on the regular basis. They, of course, are working against America on 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 the regular basis. And this, the way that they have lied about the pandemic, which many people called a long time ago, is just the latest example of some of the ways that they are working to be able to undermine democracy across the world. So um, hopefully Biden will continue to take a hard line stance against China when he gets in. But 
obviously we're yet to, all of that is yet to be seen. Um, we'll need to kind of see how a lot of this, you know, starts to play out once Biden actually gets into office. So with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and move on into our last story of the day. Story number three. So on our third story of the day, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the famous AOC, doesn't make the cut. So late last week, uh, it was AOC was heavily voted against by fellow Democrats to be part of an incredibly important committee within the House of Representatives. So uh, Democrats overwhelmingly voted to give the seat of the on the House Energy and Commerce Committee to uh, Representative Kathleen Rice out of New York instead of Ocasio-Cortez and what ended up actually being a 46 to 13 vote. So AOC was uh, pretty resoundingly voted against in that. Many Democrats cited that her voting and her policies are actually too far left to be put on the committee and they didn't want her left-leaning policies to be there dictating a lot of the different things that the committee does. So what is the House Energy and Commerce Committee? This is a specific committee within the House of Representatives. It was established in 1795, so it's one of the oldest committees uh, and has probably the broadest jurisdiction of any authorizing committee in Congress as it legislates on an extremely wide variety of issues. So just to lift, list off a few, this includes health care, this is including mental health and substance abuse, health insurance, including Medicare and Medicaid, biomedical research and development, food, drug, device, and cosmetic safety, environmental protection, clean air and climate change, safe drinking water, toxic chemicals and hazardous waste, motor vehicle safety, privacy, cybersecurity, and data security, consumer protection and product safety, and foreign commerce, just to name a few of the things. Things. That also is over nuclear facilities, like, I mean, a ton of stuff. So it also oversees a number of federal departments as well. Um, this includes the Department of Health and Human Services, the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the Indian Health Service, the Environmental Protection Agency, Department of Energy, Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Transportation. I mean, this, this committee has a wide, wide reach in a whole bunch of different things. So... Needless to say, they do a ton of stuff, and the Democrats and some of the Republicans, I guess, that were on the committee voted, and they were like, we can't have AOC on here because she's literally too far left. Like, it's okay for her left-leaning policies to kind of, like, be over there and to be loud, but not really actually affect legislation and policies that could push through, but if she's on this committee, she's got an incredibly far left-leaning vote that could sway how the committee actually ends up pumping stuff out. So um, earlier in the week, AOC did an interview with The Intercept, where she was incredibly critical of Democratic Party leadership, alluding, their need, alluding to, in a lot of ways, the need for legacy plans to be put in place and for a lot of the older Democrats to start to step down and give up some of the power and control that they have over the Democratic Party. This is something that she's done pretty often. She's been very critical of the Democratic Party because she knows that most Repu most Democrats are pretty moderate and they don't want all of her left-leaning agenda to be pushed into the forefront of what the Democrats are, are, are kind of going for. Um, so in my mind, the reason why I think this is a pretty cool story is that the overwhelming votes against her by her fellow Democrats, I think, point to a pretty clear line in the sand that a lot of Democrats are starting to draw. A lot of Democrats are, are coming to realize, especially after 2020, that they don't want to be tied to socialism. 
They don't want to be tied to these incredibly far left progressive um, legislation or policies that are being pushed by a lot of these extremely progressive and far left politicians that have gotten voted into the House in extremely blue districts. So there was a pretty resounding voice from the American people, I think, against incredibly progressive and far left policy, voting in Joe Biden especially. Joe Biden was in a field of Democrats that were all going as far left as they could possibly get as quickly as they could get there because they thought that that would appeal to the Democratic voting electorate. Well, it didn't. All of the Democrats came in in the primaries and they were like, we don't want that. We don't want Mayor Pete Buttigieg. We don't want people like AOC. AOC wasn't in the running, but they don't want people like Kamala Harris. They don't want Cory Booker. They don't want Bernie Sanders, even though he was popular. They want Joe Biden because he's a moderate. He's more establishment Democrat. He understands how politics can and should be played. And he's going to be able to go in and get more things done than anybody would that was like a Bernie Sanders or an Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib or AOC, right? So the only places that have been willing to elect these far left progressives are places that are so blue. I mean, they are like, I mean, they are deep, deep, deep blue districts, right? Like a Republican hasn't been voted in in these districts in years and years. And as a result, they're able to get pushed in because they're young and as the Democrats call them, they're fresh faces, right? So Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, AOC are just a couple of the big ones, but those that's like the crew, you know, that's like the group that are these far left-wing socialist progressives in the House that have been making a ton of waves because they're incredibly loud and they're pushing these policies that are extremely progressive. Well, Democrats don't want it, right? They don't want to be associated with socialism because the American people don't want socialism, they don't want the government to take over the means of production. They don't want the government to take over uh, anything and everything so that they can, you know, have control over all that and basically redistribute wealth across America. Americans don't want that. All right. And the vast majority of them are not voting in these incredibly far left progressive Democrats. And now the more moderate Democrats are like, all right, we've let them be loud enough for long enough. It's it's time to it's time to you know kind of quiet them down. It's time to push them a little bit more out to the fringes where they belong. I think that that's a good thing. I think that there needs to be more push towards moderation, especially within the Democratic Caucus. So hopefully that's something we will continue to see as things go on and as AOC continues to be louder. People, the Democrats within our party, will just be like, "Listen, you stay over there on your far left side of the aisle. We're going to actually try to work and get things done." So with all that having been said, that is the end of our third story of the day. Let's move on in to the last segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is obviously Christmas, right? Christmas is here. It's only a couple days away. And I am so excited to be able to spend time with family, open up gifts, eat some good food, have some good drinks, and have some great laughs. Definitely looking forward to it. We normally have a great time around Christmas, and this year is going to be no different. We're going to hopefully be able to see as much of our family as we can. And I'm very, very much enjoying getting some time you know, away from work, resting a little bit, rejuvenating around the holidays and having some great time watching movies and eating good food and eating some sweets and stuff. So that, of course, is what's going to make me smile this week. I'm sure that it will make you smile as well. I wish all of you here from the Split the Difference family to your family at home a Merry, Merry Christmas. And we hope that you enjoy yourself and enjoy a bunch of friends and family and just have a great time around this holiday season. So with all of that, that is the show for today. Thank you so much for stopping in and checking us out. 
As always, remember, we're on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. We're on, I got my website open, splittedifference.com. Go and check me out there. Drop me a like, a five-star review, a thumbs up, a subscribe. All of that stuff helps so much. And it goes a really long way for kind of getting this podcast out there to hopefully get in front of more people. So remember, as always, guys, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We're going to do our best to stay reasonable. And we're always going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor. <laughs>